Our scripture this morning is Ezekiel chapters 1 and 2. It's a longer section, 38 verses. But uh, they belong together, so I'd like to read with you Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 2. Ezekiel 1 and verse 1. Now it came about in the thirtieth year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Chabar, among the exiles, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's exile, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, son of Bozi, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the river Chabar, and there the land of the hand of the Lord came upon him. As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually, and a bright light around it, and in its midst something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. Within it there were figures resembling four living beings, and this was their appearance. They had human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, and their feet were like a calf's hoof, and they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, were human hands, as for the faces and wings of the four of them. Their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right, and the face of a bull on the left, and all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being, and two covering their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go, without turning as they went. In the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. Their fire, the fire was bright, and lightning was flashing from the fire. And the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. Now as I looked at the living beings, behold, there was one wheel on the earth beside the living beings for each of the four of them. The appearance of the wheels and their workmanship was like sparkling barrel. And all four of them had the same form, their appearance and workmanship being as if one wheel were within another. Whenever they moved, they moved in any of their four directions without turning as they moved. As for their rims, they were lofty and awesome, and the rims of all four of them were full of eyes round about. Whenever the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them, and whenever the living beings rose from the earth, the wheels rose also. Wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go in that direction, and the wheels rose close beside them. For the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Whenever those went, these went. And whenever those stood still, these stood still. And whenever those rose from the earth, the wheels rose close beside them. For the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Now over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse. Uh, think here like, like a platform. Like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. 
Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward the other. Each one also had two wings covering its body on the one side and on the other. I also heard the sound of their wings like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty, a sound of tumult like the sound of an army camp. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward, something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within him. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire, and there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. Now I'll begin chapter 2. Then he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. As he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. Then he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. I am sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. As for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words. Though thistles and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, Neither fear their words, nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. Now you, son of man, listen to what I am speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. And when he spread it out before me, It was written on the front and back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. And I hate to have to stop there, but uh, in in the first verses of chapter 3, he eats the scroll and finds it tastes like honey. But we'll say more about that. Now, congregation, in October, last October, this this church sent a call letter to me. I got the call letter in my email and it stayed in there, the various expectations that the church had of myself and various other details on this call letter. And it's a very important thing in my life, right? That was uh, something that I'll never forget. But this morning, we have in the book of Ezekiel that he receives a call letter. And his call letter is, is one of a kind, isn't it? There's nothing like it and there never has been anything like the call letter that Ezekiel received. And indeed, uh, I would like to uh, preach some sermons on the book of Ezekiel. Now, I know that might not have been the first book you would have imagined that I would preach a series of sermons on, but I think you'll find a congregation that the book of Ezekiel is uh, a book full of treasure for the people of God. Ezekiel has been called the prophet of the visual aid. 
more than any other prophet, it seems, Ezekiel was commanded by God to do things that were visual, that people could see. And uh, so then it became kind of an acted parable. You understand what I mean by that? Right, a parable is, we often say, an earthly story, right, with a heavenly meaning. But what Ezekiel does is he would act out things. He would do things. He would lay on his side. You, you'll see different. I'll, I'll run through a few of these with you. And, and, and these, these actions that he performs are parables. In other words, there's a heavenly meaning to them. And there's a spiritual a meaning to these actions that he performs that people are to understand. And you know, we even say, right, that sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. And certainly Ezekiel is a prophet that does that. Now, uh, also, the, unfortunately, the book of Ezekiel has been a, a playground, as it were, for these prophecy people, right, who want to see uh, that, you know, such and such a, uh, a chapter in Ezekiel is a prophecy of the Russian, uh, Soviet, whatever, or, or the... Uh, this and that, the United Nations and things like that. And uh, I'd like to try to clarify how it is that we are to understand the book of Ezekiel and to understand it correctly and to make the proper application of it to our lives. So anyways, let's look then at Ezekiel the man. Ezekiel the man. And in the first verses of our chapter, we have the information that's given us that it says he was, in, he was by the river Kabar among the exiles. So already we know that Ezekiel was a man who was not in Jerusalem. He was not in Israel. He was in Babylon. He had been taken captive. Now, if you like, you can turn to 2 Kings 24, and you can kind of see the details of what happened back in those days when the king of Babylon made, at least uh, so far as we're told in Scripture, three runs to Israel. Three times he came to Israel and took people captive. And it was only the third time where he actually burned the city to the ground. But in 2 Kings 24, in verse 1, it says, In his days Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans, bands of Arameans, bands of Moabites, and bands of Ammonites, and so on. And this would have been then well, when Nebuchadnezzar made his first visit to Israel, and he took back with him a number of people, a number of Israelites who he had chosen, and very likely among them was Daniel and his three friends. Uh, we're told in the book of Daniel that he, he was taken captive during the reign of Jehoiakim. So very likely Daniel and his three friends were captured in that first exile. But then Nebuchadnezzar made a second trip, and you see that in the same chapter, 2 Kings 24 and verse 12, and this is when Jehoiakim the king of Judah went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his captains and his officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. So you can see now it's, it's, you know, it's getting more serious, isn't it? Now the king of Babylon has come and he's taken the king captive. The king captive. And it's during this captivity likely that Ezekiel was taken. And how do we know that? Well, because you can see that in verse 2, it says, On the fifth of the month, in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim, king's exile, so it seems that Ezekiel then was taken captive, not in the first one, under Jehoiakim, but Jehoiakim, the second exile. So, at any rate, Ezekiel is not in Jerusalem, he is in exile. Now, in verse 3, we're told another detail, that Ezekiel was the son of a priest. Or, I'm sorry, that Ezekiel himself was a priest. The word of the Lord came to expressly to Ezekiel, the priest. 
congregation, I think that, that means something for us. That Ezekiel would have been in Babylon on the, on the shore of the Chabar River and he would have been singing. You remember that song of the Jews in exile? Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it we hung our harps, for there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. And so on. Ezekiel would have been one of those captives on the, on the rivers of Babylon, singing these songs about Zion, singing these, these, these uh, mournful songs, remembering the time they had had in Jerusalem. Ezekiel loved the church. He loved the people of God. And he was a priest. So that's Ezekiel the man. Ezekiel's ministry, the second place, Ezekiel's ministry. Well, like I said before, congregation, Ezekiel was a prophet of the visual aid. And especially the message that he's bringing to Israel, like all the prophets, right, is that is, is a message of repentance. But congregation, the situation with Ezekiel has, has gotten to a point of, uh, it's different than like what it was with Amos or Habakkuk or Isaiah. The situation now is, like Babylon's not coming, they're here. The city is going to be wiped out and destroyed. It is, it is zero hour, if I can use that expression, right? I mean, there is no time left. The, 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 the Nebuchadnezzar is at the city gates. Now, of course, Ezekiel is in Babylon, so he can't know with great detail what's going on in Jerusalem, but he knows that this is the end. And Israel's situation is grim. It is dire. They are at the end of their rope. And now God gives these visions. And I'm not going to, of course, speak about all these, but I'll just give you a taste. I've listed some chapters there. And if you can just uh, listen or, or turn with me, but in chapter 4, in chapter 4, verse 1, God commands Ezekiel, Now you, son of man, get yourself a brick, or, or possibly a tablet. Place it before you and inscribe a city on it. In other words, draw a picture of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege against it. So draw a picture of siege. And again, I'm not going to explain this further, but you get the idea, right? He's literally drawing a picture of Jerusalem and trying to show Jerusalem this is what's going to happen. You, you are, people are in serious, serious trouble. And then in Ezekiel chapter 5. Now some, of these, some of these pictures border on the bizarre. But uh, uh, chapter 5. As for you, son of man, take a sharp sword, or probably like a knife. Take and use it as a barber's razor on your head and beard. Then take scales for weighing and divide the hair. And it goes on to say how Ezekiel is to cut off all his hair, all his beard. He's to put it in a scale. And he's to divide it into three equal parts. And then he's to do something to each of these three parts. He's to take one part. Well, you can read that in verse city. I'm sorry, in verse two. But then he takes, the, uh, he takes one third of the hair and he chops it up with a sword. Again, that, that's a picture to Israel of what's about to happen to them. And again, you can, you can read further. But in chapter eight, we have uh, something very unique in the book of Ezekiel. In chapter 8, God gives, you might say, God lifts up Ezekiel and takes him on a trip to Jerusalem. Remember, Ezekiel is in Babylon. 
But now God picks him up in a vision and takes him to Jerusalem to show him what's happening there. You can see in chapter 8, verse 1, it came about in the sixth year, on the fifth day of the sixth month, as I was sitting in my house with the elders of Judah, sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell on me there. And, and he, uh, he sees this vision in verse 2. And in verse 3, he stretched out the form of a hand and caught me by a lock of my head. And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the idol of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy, was located. So there you see that uh, God has brought Ezekiel to Jerusalem. And God shows him various things in the city of Jerusalem. And that's chapters 8, 9, and 11. In chapter 12. In chapter 12, in verse 3. Therefore, son of man, prepare for yourself baggage for exile. And go into exile by day in their sight. Even go into exile from your place to another place in their sight. Perhaps they will understand. So he's literally packing his bags and walking out of the city. Again, a picture of that the, you people are going to go into exile. You're going to be destroyed by the Babylonians if you don't repent and turn to God. But as you know, the Israel is a rebellious people. They do not repent. And finally, you might say the hammer falls. In, Deuteron- or in Ezekiel 33 and verse 21. Ezekiel gets a messenger. Now in the twelfth year, this is Ezekiel 33 and 21, now in the twelfth year of our exile, on the fifth of the tenth month, the refugees from Jerusalem came to me saying, the city has been taken. We we struggle, congregation. In fact, it's impossible for us to really appreciate the horrifying news that must have been for the Jewish people. It's not just that the city has fallen, but it's almost as if God himself has fallen. Because Israel was God's people. God had made promises to them. God had said to David, you will have one of your sons sitting on your throne forever and ever. This is the house of God. This is where my name dwells. Zion will, will, will exist forever and forever. All these promises that God had made. God had said to Abraham, blessed is the one who blesses you. Cursed is the one who curses you. And now these people hear this dreadful message. Jerusalem is utterly destroyed. And the, the, the news even trickles back to these people in exile. You can't imagine the devastating news that must have been for them. But then you notice a bit of a shift in Ezekiel. That from this point on, now there's still messages of God's judgment, but they're very much uh, reduced. And it's nothing like what was in the previous chapters. But now there are many more prophecies of hope and encouragement to the people of Israel. And at the the last chapters, remember Ezekiel was a priest. He would have been busy in the temple. God gives in chapters 40 to 48 a new temple. And in detail, in fact, for me to read it would be very tedious because it it gives even the measurements. So many cubits here, so many cubits high. It'll be this, it'll be that. The the detailed measurements and a blueprint, really, for a new temple that will be built. And that takes up all of chapters 40 to 48. And that really is then the whole book of Ezekiel. 
Really, the hinge there is that verse in 3321, right? When Jerusalem has fallen. And on the, the, the going forward from that is prophecies of hope and encouragement. Whereas the prophecies before that are very convicting, very searching, as God calls them to repentance. Well, let's make haste congregation then to his call. And this brings us to this mystifying vision that we have in chapter 1. What does all this mean? Well, congregation, the first thing we have to say is we don't know what every detail means. And we're not meant to know. In fact, in many sense, this vision is given us to feel. It's given us to, to sense something of the indescribable glory of God. And so the first thing that you see then in this is the storm cloud. In verse 4, you see, As I looked, behold, a storm wind or a storm cloud was coming from the north. A great cloud with fire flashing forth continuously and a bright light around it and so on. So this, you might say, is the precursor. Right? This is like the, this is like the man who blows the trumpet and says, The king is coming. Here's this glorious cloud, flashing lightning, bright, and it comes forward. And we know that behind it then is going to be the king. So in the first place you have the, the storm cloud, the precursors of God's arrival. Then you have these creatures, these cherubim. And, and again, this is very mysterious. These creatures are set up such that they have four sides to them. And in each side, there is a face facing this way, facing that way, facing this way, and facing to the back. They have four faces facing in each of the directions. In verse 8, each of these, each of these four sides has hands. They have wings. Verse 10 tells us the different kinds of faces. And then verse 12. And if you have your Bible open, look in verse 12, please, with me. I want you to see this. It's verse 12. So Ezekiel 1 and verse 12. And each went straight forward. Wherever the Spirit was about to go, they would go, without turning as they went. And of course, congregation, they didn't need to turn as they went because they had a face in each direction. So if the Spirit went this way, they just, this face was already facing that way, and there they went. And if the Spirit went this way, the cherubim went that way. And you can say, well, that's kind of impossible, isn't it? How can they. Congregation, this is a vision. This is a vision, right? We're not meant to, to try to draw a picture of it. We're not meant to understand what, literally how does that happen. No, there's meaning. There's meaning. And the meaning in this is that when the Spirit goes this way, these four living beings, they don't need to... If the Spirit goes that way, and I'm going to follow the Spirit, I need to turn and go. But these spirits don't need to turn because they're already all facing in all directions. So that if the Spirit goes that way, the Spirit just moves in that direction because His face is already facing that way. Wherever the Spirit goes, wherever the Spirit goes, these living beings go. And, and this is emphasized several different times. And in verse 15, we have the emphasis given us again. Because now it says that under each of these living beings, there is a wheel. Behold, there was one wheel on the earth beside the living beings for each of the four of them. Now it describes a bit uh, the wheel. And, and it says, once again, in verse 16, 
that there's a wheel. I'm missing that. But anyway, so there was a wheel for each of these beings, okay? But these wheels are set up very interesting because there's a wheel inside the wheel. And again, verse 17 tells us that whenever they moved, they moved in any of the four directions without turning as they moved. Because the wheel, it's, it's difficult sometimes to explain these things, but so there's a wheel here, right? And if I'm going that way, then the wheel would just turn this way, right? But if I wanted to go this way, that wheel would have to turn, right? But what Ezekiel says is here is that there's a wheel within the wheels. You can see that in verse 16, that these wheels are within one another. And again, the idea here is then that if the spirit goes this way, the cherub follows because there's already a wheel pointed in that direction. There's already a face in that direction. And the, and the cherubim goes this way. But then there's also a wheel this way. So if the, if, the, if the spirit goes that way or this way, there's already a wheel in that direction as well. Now you say, this is very bizarre. What, what, a, what does all this mean? Well, congregation, again, I'm going to start by saying it would be foolish of me to stand up here and say I understand exactly what all this means. But the clue that we have is that it's repeated over and over again. Verse 19, whenever the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them. And whenever the living beings rose from the earth, the wheels rose also. So even when they went up and down. And then here's the key. Verse 20, wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go in that direction. And the wheels rose close beside them. For the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Wherever, whenever those went, these went. So whenever the wheels went, that cherub, that, that, that living being went. And whenever the wheels stood still, the being stood still, the, the creature stood still. Whenever those rose up, the spirit rose up. And so on. And what does that mean? Well, again, I, I think that possibly the meaning of this congregation is that these living beings are so eager and willing to do the will of God that when the spirit goes forward, there's already a wheel moving in that direction. And when the spirit goes to the right, there's already a face and already a wheel going in that direction. So they don't even need to turn. They just go. They are always willing to go wherever the Lord may lead them. Wherever the spirit goes, these beings go. That is the, that is the nature of these four living beings. Again, is that exactly correct? I don't know. I, I, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's always a bit difficult to know. But I think that because that, that concept, that idea is repeated in this chapter, that wherever the Spirit goes, these beings go. And the Spirit there is standing is, is, the God, is God Himself. That's how I would understand that. And that certainly fits what's coming. Because after this vision that uh, Ezekiel sees, oh, and then, of course, in, the, in this dream, you also have this platform, right? You see that in verse... Uh, there's a, a platform in verse 22... This, this expanse, and then above that is the throne, and of course God is on that throne himself. And God is described here, but again, notice the description. It doesn't say he was this tall, right? Or this color. All it says is just, he burned with fire. Right? There's no words can describe who God is. Well then, you have the call letter given us in chapter 2. Here is Ezekiel's call letter. And the Spirit comes upon him. He stands on his feet. 
And God says in verse 3, Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. And basically, congregation, imagine receiving a call letter like this. I'm sending you to Israel. They're not going to listen. That's Ezekiel's call letter. And God says, don't mind if they listen or if they do listen. Just preach the word. I'm going to give you my word. You bring it to them. And he says, he says in there, in verse 7, but you shall speak my words to them whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. That seems like a very difficult call letter to receive. But then God gives Ezekiel an experience. In, at the end of verse 2, you see that the scroll is extended to Ezekiel. And you see what's written on this call letter, the last verse of Ezekiel 2, verse 10. Written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. How do you like that for a call letter? Lamentations, mourning, and woe. But what happens when Ezekiel eats that call letter? And again, not literally that he put it in his mouth and ate it, okay? But it's a picture. He puts it in his mouth, he eats it. And as that word comes into Ezekiel, it comes into his mind, it comes into his soul, becomes part of his beating heart, you might say. It's as sweet as honey. You say, well, how can it be as sweet as honey? He's talking about funeral songs, right? Lamentations, mourning, and woe. Well, congregation, Ezekiel is taught here that when you do the will of God, and when you take his word and you speak it faithfully, it's as sweet as honey. And it's a wonderfully sweet thing. And last of all, the, the, the reaction then, the response of Ezekiel, you see that in chapters 3 and verse 15. So after this vision, he says, Then I came to the exiles who lived beside the river Chabar at Tel Aviv, and I sat there seven days where they were living, causing consternation among them. And, and it says here how he, how he, was, he was so devastated, congregation. You see, I sat there seven days. For seven days, he sits there speechless. He has nothing to say. He's, you might say, wiped out by this vision and by this call letter that he's received. Well, congregation, I'll stop the exposition there and think about ways we can apply this to ourselves. Because the fundamental principle that we have to grasp this morning, congregation, as we think of applying this, is that all of God's people are ministers. If you are a Christian here this morning, you are a minister of God. You are called to serve God. You might not be called to serve as a pastor of a church, but we all have a ministry. We are all kings and priests before God. We have a ministry that we are called to perform. And so when this call letter came to Ezekiel, we can now take that call letter to ourselves. We can receive this call letter. We can take it as coming to each one of us. And we can ask ourselves, what is the ministry that God has called me to perform on this earth? In whatever slice of society you find yourself, wherever it is in business, in home, in school, wherever it may be, 
God has called you to serve. And so the question that I want to close this message then is, how can we be successful ministers for God? Because this chapter teaches us that. And in the first place, it teaches us that we must have a vision of God. Now, congregation, I'm not saying that everybody has to have a vision or they actually see something with their eyes. No, I'm not saying that. I mean that we have to have an idea of God in our minds that matches what we find here in the Scripture. And that means we have to have a vision of God that is, that is uh, supremely beyond anything that we can imagine. Because that's the vision that Ezekiel received here. And congregation, if we are going to serve God in this dark world, we have to have that vision of God in our own mind. We have to see God the way Ezekiel saw Him. I have this quote here from, from A.W. Tozer that I'd like to read with you. You can see that in the notes there. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous or the most important fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him, or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. Congregation, we have to say our hearty amen to those words. This, this idea that you have in your mind of God is such a transforming vision. It changes everything that you, you think and do in your life. This is a life-transforming vision. And Ezekiel sees it, right? In his mind's eye, he sees this glorious vision, these, the storm cloud, the creatures. He sees the platform, the throne of God. He sees the lightning flash, the fire. And what is all that, congregation, to teach us? That human words cannot capture the glory of the divine. And so God paints a picture, as it were. Now, does God sit on a platform, on a throne? Of course not. But the poverty of human language is such, congregation, that the, the prophet has to have this picture to communicate to us something of a sense of the glory of God. And that's what we have here. And if we're ever going to serve God in this world, congregation, we must have that vision of God in our mind. And that's why in the Reformed churches, we have our doctrine of God that we have. And that quote from Warfield that I put there is so important, especially for Reformed theology. The central fact of Calvinism, writes Warfield, is the vision of God. Its determining principle is zeal for the divine honor. What it sets itself to do is to render to God his rights in every sphere of life activity. In this it begins and centers and ends. This is Reformed theology. Congregation, this is what it means 
to be a, a member of a Reformed church. That we take our stand on God himself. This is who God is. And yes, there are so many questions that we can have about predestination. We can ask questions about, well, if God has willed all this, how, how, how does this fit together, right? But in one sense, as Calvinists, we say we're not even entirely sure ourselves. But this we know, that God is greater than anything we can possibly say. And so as Warfield says, we give God his rights. We put God up and man down. And if that means we have to live with issues that are difficult to resolve in Calvinism, as there certainly are, so be it. We will not lower God. And, and no doubt many of you have heard of this openness of God theology, right? Which says, well, that God doesn't really know the future. And, and that way people have free choices that they can make. And, and God responds to those choices. To hell with that theology congregation. Because it came from hell. God is great. God is glorious. And whatever we must do, congregation, in our theology, is we give God his rights, as Warfield says. God is great, and man is not. You know, uh, Ligon Duncan, the president of Reformed Theological Seminary, he talks about big God theology. And that's just his way of expressing the fact that in Reformed churches, we put God first. Now, am I saying that all other churches don't do that? No, of course not. Here, A.W. Tozer is not Reformed, but look what he says there. But in Reformed circles, congregation, that is our, that is our driving purpose. That in our theology, wherever we might, we might fall short of understanding, we put God in the uppermost place. And congregation, what a glorious thing that is to think about as we serve God, as we seek to minister to God. If you are seeking to be faithful in this world, congregation, if you are seeking to minister to this world from, from the scripture, think of who you're following. Think of in whose cause you're serving. You know, people have all sorts of, right, people join political causes, they'll, they'll join a political campaign, and uh, there's, uh, you know, uh, causes to stop breast cancer and to save the whales and and all these different things. And many of those are wonderful. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't get involved in those things. But step back for a minute, congregation. Think of what it means to serve the living God. Think of what it means to say, I am a minister of Almighty God and of Jesus Christ, His Son. All of us want to, all of us want to serve in a cause, right? All of us want to be part of a movement. We all want to be involved in something. That's part of what it means to be human, right? We, 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 we want to stand for for righteousness and justice in some way in this world. This is the greatest cause in which you can ever serve. To serve Almighty God and to know that you march to His beat. That He is your leader, that He's your shepherd. He is your God and your King. This is a cause worth serving. Young people, what cause are you going to serve in in this life? Who's going to be your leader? All these other causes that I've mentioned, there's so many different things out there, right? They all fall short. Many of them are helpful. Many of them are very foolish. But many of them are helpful and good and we need these kinds of causes. But to serve the Almighty God, that is an all-consuming vision that takes over your whole life. That's like, remember when we talked about those burnt offerings, right? When they would put the whole animal on the altar and offered up to God. That's what a burnt offering was. Remember, a whole burnt offering. The whole animal was placed on the altar. In the other offerings, they would take out this or that, right? And, and there would be a, a feast of some kind. But in the whole burnt offering, the most common offering, the whole animal was put on there. Congregation, let, 
God give you this vision of himself. Let this vision be in your eye and it will capture you and take over your life as nothing before. And you will be a burnt offering. You will place your body, your life, your ambitions, your goal, your agenda. You will place that on an altar and you will offer it up to God. And you'll say, Lord, I am yours. Well, if we are going to be effective ministers of God, we must have this vision of God. If we are going to be effective ministers of God, congregation in the second place, we must have the Spirit of God. And you see that, right? In Ezekiel 2, verse 2, this man is so weak that after he saw this vision, right, he couldn't even move for seven days. He just sat there before the people of God. But notice in, in chapter 2 and verse 2 that as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet. Congregation, we cannot go forward, even with this vision of God in our minds, we cannot go forward as ministers of God unless the Spirit of God indwells us. And that should derive us to be people, to be men and women of prayer. Spirit of God, fall down on me. If the Spirit of God is not taking over and is in possession of our hearts and minds, congregation, then we're just people. We're just human minds, human feet, and human hands. But when the Spirit of God comes in us, we stand on our feet. And the Spirit of God brings power. You noticed from that hymn that we sang about the prophets, anoint me as prophet. Anoint me as priest, it said. In congregation, that anointing is so necessary. Do you pray, congregation, that God would give you that anointing? Do you pray for me as your preacher, that God would anoint me with his Spirit to preach the gospel here every week? Do you pray that the elders would have this anointing, the deacons? And do you pray that the whole congregation would have this anointing, that the Spirit of God would come upon us and stand us up on our feet and make us ready and willing to go forth in His service? We need the Spirit of God. In the third place, we must have the right focus. We must have the right focus. And isn't that given us to us in verse 7? But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not. Does God call us to be faithful? Or does God call us to be successful? What should be our focus? Success or faithfulness? Now, of course, we should aim to be successful. We should do all we can to be as successful as possible, to make the message as clear as possible. But God calls us to be faithful. That means we must speak whether they hear or whether they refuse to hear. How people respond to us is not our business. God has that in his control. We are simply prophets. The word of God is to come from God and to flow through us and to this world. But God calls us to be faithful and not successful. And I find an interesting congregation that, that uh, Ezekiel is even told that the house of Israel, look at chapter 3 and verse 7. The house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. And then verse 8, Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. In other words, Israel is stubborn. They don't want to hear the call to repentance that comes to them from the prophets of God. But God says, by the power of the Spirit of God, I'm going to make your head, I'm going to make your spirit as stubborn and as hard as theirs. 
so that you're going to preach to them whether they hear or whether they don't hear. And of course, that's a happy stubbornness, isn't it? That's a happy hardness when we're so firm that we will not relent. We will not change the message. We know what God expects and we say it. And we can be as stubborn as others. So we must have the right focus. Focus on being faithful and not necessarily successful. And finally, congregation, to be ministers of God, we need to taste. We need to taste the word of God. And you see that in chapter 3 and verse 3 at the very end there. Then I ate it. That is, he ate that call letter that God gave him. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. Congregation, there's nothing sweeter in this world than to do God's will. That when God gives us a word, and he's certainly given us his word, and we are faithful in living and and bringing and, and even preaching that word, that is as sweet as honey. That's the happy life. You can read the stories, can't we, of great missionaries, uh, and you should read those stories, right? Adoniram Judson, who went to Burma. His wife would have a child, and the child would die just as soon as it was born, pretty much. Awful, the heartache and the grief that those poor people had to face. Gladys Aylward, going to China, leading a hundred Chinese orphans out of the battle zone during World War II, getting strafed by Japanese fighters, and many others. But congregation, just being faithful in our own situation. It would be wonderful if God would call us to be missionaries and pastors in this world. And young men, you shouldn't dismiss that. God may be calling you into the ministry. You should look that in the face, confront it, and ask yourself whether that might not be the case for you. But all of us congregation, men and women alike, are called to labor in the situation where God has placed us, wherever that may be. You know, Booker T. Washington, he would tell his students in in his college, put your spade in wherever you are. Right, because he, he was talking to students who wanted to do great things. They wanted to go to positions of honor. They wanted to do this and do that. And Booker T would just say, put your spade in wherever you are. And congregation, that's the message of the kingdom of God today. Put your spade in wherever you are. Do the work of the ministry wherever you are, in whatever situation you may find yourselves. And the result is as sweet as honey. As sweet as honey. Again, in, in terms of our focus, God isn't calling you, right, to, to do this. You know, we, we tend to be such numbers people, don't we? Well, you know, God is calling you to be faithful wherever you are. Put your spade in where you are. John Gill, the great Baptist minister, theologian, wrote, Ministers gather the word of God as honey by the industrious bee out of the various flowers of the scriptures which they then bring into the hive of the church. Isn't that a beautiful expression? Of bees going from flower to flower. And of us, congregation, going from scripture to scripture, taking that honey out and bringing it back into the situation where we find ourselves and letting others taste of that sweetness and calling others to put their trust in Jesus and to follow him. Congregation, may God anoint us all then to be ministers of his gospel to be ministers that are faithful to the word that he has entrusted us with. May God grant it for his name's sake. Amen. Let us pray.
Lord, we've heard your call this morning. And as Ezekiel, Lord, we, we want to push back against it. We don't feel sufficient for these things. We don't feel, Lord, as if we can speak. We don't feel as if we have enough knowledge to defend the cause of God and truth. Lord, we don't even feel sometimes as if our faith is strong enough to speak to others about faith. Lord, we know that there is a ministry that you've called us to perform in this world. Help us now, Lord. Please help us to be faithful. To put our spade in wherever we are. And I pray, O oh Lord, that there would go forth out of this congregation many ministers, men and women, young and old, whether we're rich or whether we're poor, that we would go forth with the word of God in our mouths. And that whatever situation in our businesses, in our homes, in our families, in our churches, in our schools, in colleges, Lord, I pray that wherever we are, that we would be able ministers of the new covenant, able ministers of the gospel of a crucified king for lost sinners. Lord, help us to have also this vision of God as we've seen it in this chapter. A vision that is wrapped in so much mystery. And yet a vision that teaches us that we should be ready to go in whichever direction you will point us. May our wheels be rolling in that direction, Lord. And when you say, go, that we would say, yes, Lord. And that when you call, Lord, that we would say, hear my Lord, send me. Lord, make us ready and willing then to run in the way of your commandments and to do your will in this world. We pray, O oh Lord, that at the end of our life we might, we might experience, and many times during our life, we might also experience from your hand, Lord, that your word is as sweet as honey in our mouth. Lord, will you bless us then and remember us this day. Will you bring us back this evening? May your word go forth with power and effect amongst us. And in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.